Hey, everybody. I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Punk Rock HR. My guest this week is Jim Knight. He is a rock star in the world of training and development. And I hate using that word because it's overused. But when it comes to Jim Knight, it actually means something. Jim has over 30 years of experience teaching people how to be their best. And in this conversation, we go deep on the industries of retail, hospitality, and food service, because that's really the area of the economy that Jim knows best. And boy, if those businesses, those verticals, those sectors haven't been hit by COVID and the civil unrest that's happening all over America. Those jobs in retail, hospitality, and food service, well, they're really the backbone of American families. So in this conversation, we talk about the recession, we talk about staying motivated, and we talk about resiliency. So if you want to hear what a real rock star sounds like, and you're sick of people hyping themselves as one, well, sit back and enjoy my conversation with Jim Knight. Hey, Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it. So good to see you again and hear from you. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, really, it's my honor because you are a rock star and a badass. I mean, that is just legit. And for those who don't know who you are, which is nobody really, but if they don't know who you are, what are you all about? How do you introduce yourself and tell people what you do for a living and what you believe in? Yeah, I'm out on my own now. So I actually identify myself as a keynote speaker and an author. I have written one book, working on a couple others. I'm a podcaster. Those are probably the three main areas, but most people will know me in the hospitality industry where I worked for 21 years in charge of training and development for Hard Rock International. Well, there's so much to unpack in your career history, but you're on the show today because the hospitality industry, service workers, hourly workers have really taken a hit in our economy. And when I think about your brand, I think about resilience. So can you tell us what's going on in that industry today? Let's start there. Yeah, you know, I do actually think there's a little bit of resilience. You know, you and I both belong to some associations that are really having their finger on the pulse and and really discovering what it means to be resilient. And I would say that because the National Restaurant Association will say that probably I think the number's up to 65% of all Americans will at least work in the hospitality industry at some point in their life. A lot of them, it's their very first job. And many of them will stay in it and be a manager and make a career out of it. But a lot of people will use it as a stepping stone to their next gig, whatever that is. But because so many people work in this industry, it also means that with everything that's going on in the world, it's probably the hardest hit industry. Next to mine, speaking, there's no event. So we have no money coming in. But I think the restaurant, hotel, retail industries have just really been hurting. But You know, if you know anything about their background, ever since people have been going out to eat and shop, it will absolutely bounce back and probably quicker than most other industries. So I think when it comes to resiliency, you know, you're already starting to see many states open up as if, uh, you know, COVID-19 didn't even happen. And that might be okay in some states. I'm sure it freaks out some others. But, you know, I live in Florida and we're starting to see already that this thing is probably about 75% back open. But Here's what I love about it. Even at its absolute worst, when we were all in quarantine and lockdown, I was still able to go out to do some to-go and some takeout to help support the industry that I love so much that I grew up in. So, 
you know, right out of the gate, I, I guess just to respond to your first question, when it comes to resiliency, I think that particular industry, although they're hurting right now, and a lot of people have probably lost their jobs and been furloughed, I do see snapping back pretty quick, quicker than most, I would guess. Good. Well, that's good to hear. You know, when we talk about restaurant, retail, hospitality, we just talk about it in a big bucket. But really, there are corporations, then there are small business owners, and then there are workers. And they all have individual challenges right now, challenges with COVID-19 and challenges with civil unrest in many cities. And so I wonder, you know, a lot of people think that corporations and small business owners are antagonistic with one another. And then they're always fighting with workers and there's always tension around wages and earnings and unionization. Is it as contentious as we are led to believe in the media? Or is it an industry that is like any other industry where there are some battles, but it's mostly okay? I don't know. What's your take on that? You know, the safe answer is it depends on where you work. You know, I do think that it'd be ridiculous for me to say there isn't some contentiousness that's going on. You know, it depends on the organization. And probably the bigger that you get, you lose sight a little bit. I would think, I I hate to generalize or even to stereotype, but you lose sight of the employees and how critical that human component is, where I think if you go all the way down on a micro level to the mom and pop, the really small businesses, they absolutely understand how passionate and committed employees can absolutely make or break their brand. So, you know, there's probably some really bad actors that are on the big stage that are out there that are just trying to protect their profits. They're trying to protect their brand. They're trying to do what's right, whether it's regulation or taxation or listening to the government on what they can do around the crisis right now. And maybe they're doing the absolute best can. And part of that is let some people go or furlough people or trying to figure out, let's say, how to pay out unemployment and how to do the right thing for employees. And there are others that probably got in front of it a lot quicker. You know, it doesn't help that the government, which, you know, I think they are on some things and suck at other things. I just think this whole, you know, whether it's the payroll protection loan, whether it's unemployment, whether it was the initial stimulus, the rules keep changing every single day. And part of it is they don't know. I mean, we've never gone through something like this. They're trying to figure it out. And other times they're just slow as molasses as government usually is. And, you know, who winds up getting hurt are the employees. So I think, you know, especially in a large global organization like I used to work in, you know, it was probably tough right out of the gate for Hard Rock International, who was owned by the Seminole Tribe of Florida, probably initially to, to get their hands around everything that was going on. But now you start to see there's real movement and they're starting to realize, especially as we start to come out of it, how you treat your employees, if I could almost quote Mark Cuban these days, is really going to make a difference for your brand, I think, for decades. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, as you were talking, my mind went to the issue of, well, three issues, pay, safety, and engagement, and how they're all really related. I don't know. Before I tell you what I think about that, I mean, it's probably pretty obvious. Tell me, do you think they're related? And if so, how? You know, I think they probably are related. I think that, I guess if you were really completely transparent, you were communicating with everybody, you were engaging everybody during the crisis, it's probably because you were engaging with the employees before all this went down. I think if you're awesome in communication, you probably continued on, you perpetuated that same sort of open communication horrible out of it, you probably just made it even worse. From a safety standpoint, I do think you're going to probably see a lot of change now. I think, you know, whether you're going to see, you know, sanitation solution stations all 
the place, whether you see as employees start to come back in as part of their opening checklist, you know, probably people are going to start getting their temperature checked. You know, I I think that you're probably going to have a lot more regulation, whether it's from the city, the county, the state or the nation saying there are some things that you got to put into place where maybe food safety and sanitation was a a really cool, nice to have, you know, it's nice to have the certificate on the wall. Now it's going to be critical in not only are employees going to start making decisions on where they work if a company is keeping them safe, if they are being engaged with them or not, they're going to make a decision where they go to work or not. I think the guests and the customers are going to do the same thing. If I have like businesses, the one actually you know gives a crap about what's going on on the planet and its people and safety, and one doesn't, I'm choosing the other one. So I do think this is... Uh, they probably are related. I don't know if it's fleshed out yet, but I do think you're going to start seeing a lot more focus on that for sure. Well, you know, I think about the service worker or someone who's just working in hospitality and their desire to come to work. And I think if they work in a safe environment where they're compensated well and they feel part of a community, they're not necessarily going to sit home and collect unemployment, which has been the accusation that's been coming out of a lot of politicians' mouths. I think most people want to work and want to get back to work. But I think there's this weird thing that's going on right now where they're not necessarily sure that their employer has their back. They don't know if an organization has a plan for COVID. And quite honestly, in some areas, the pay is low and it's disincentivizing people to return to work. But I understand it, right? Like I totally get it. If I don't think I'm going to be protected from COVID and I'm earning more on unemployment, why am I going to rush back to work? I I don't know. Do you have a take on that? No, I agree with you. I, I think why why would you? Until I think a brand is going to prove themselves. Unless a company, again, I think they were probably already doing it. If they had the right value orientation, if they had the right mindset, if they were probably already engaged and focusing on safety, then I think this is a non-issue for people that were working in that company in the first place. Having said that, this may have been a massive wake-up call to a lot of companies to say, oh, crap, I got to start getting my butt in gear and not just focusing on the employees, but also keeping them safe, both the employees, but also the customers as well. There's probably some that have maybe, I would say, enhanced, they've amped up their brand image, if you will, maybe while all this was going on. And that's fantastic. But you know, there's so many great companies out there that were already crushing it, not just because they were first to the market or because of their product, whatever it was. They were just fantastic from a culture standpoint, which is what I wind up talking about more than anything else. Culture, service, engagement, leadership, like if those were already in place, you know, yes, did somebody still probably get furloughed and they're a little bit in limbo or maybe they lost their job because you had to after four months of not operating. But I think the really good ones, the rock stars, the ones that want to come back to the point that you made, the ones that are already passionate and committed and hardworking and you don't need to tap them on the shoulder and say, you know, it's time to do some hard work now. They're already going about it and they're going about it quick. I think they're not going to have a problem. Now, On the flip side, if you were lazy in the first place, you know, and all of a sudden you got laid off and you're collecting unemployment, you know, it probably is gravy train for you. But those were probably bad actors anyway. Those are the lip sinkers. I I just don't pay any attention to them. So tell me, who do you like? Like what brands were crushing it and continue to crush it? Like who's impressed you? You know, there's the regular culture warriors. And, you know, there's some that I absolutely will mention out here. 
just offend some people, you know? And I do think it's tough because I live in the land of Central Florida. So in theme parks, when you talk about Disney World and Universal and SeaWorld and, and these big, huge behemoths, you're starting to see that there's a little bit of a difference. I think Universal, the way that they've been really engaged in treating their employees has been fantastic. I look at Bank of America, who owns Merrill Lynch, believe it or not, in a big bank. I actually think they're doing fantastic. But if I put it really in our world, I have to continuously go back to the Raising Cane Chicken Fingers of the world, the Chick-fil-A's of the world. Again, not everybody's going to love all of those brands, but I think some of them have stepped back and said, we're going to continue to do what we're doing, not just for the customer, but for the employees. I think Sheets has been fantastic if you're familiar with them. They're a convenience store. They're the competitor really of Wawa, which I think Wawa is great, but Sheets, fantastic organization, what they do with their people. So those are some that are right out of the gate. You know, I'm trying to think on the hotel side. I see that Marriott has constant communication on a weekly basis, I think, coming out from their leadership. You know, not always roses, but they're being very transparent, letting people know what's going on. And I think people have really been appreciating that a lot. You know, and then there's the obvious ones, even the big stores like the Nordstrom's of the world who, you know, I'm just starting to see the big boxes are starting to struggle out there, but they still do a fantastic job as well. So there's a couple Good. of the big I ones. love those. I love those examples. And I'm nodding my head along, especially with Sheets, because, you know, they have a presence here in North Carolina and they win the day compared to some of the other uh, gas stations slash bodegas. You know, Sheets always clean, always friendly, always nice. And, you know, they've really done a nice job during COVID-19 to communicate who they are and how they're keeping not only their customers safe, but their employees employees safe. So I really appreciate that example. Well, and also those were one of the ones that were critical for us because as other things were shutting down, convenience stores, especially the really good ones that you could rely on. I mean, I, I don't have sheets in Central Florida. I just, I, you know, I spoke for them last year and I fall madly in love with them. But my love affair with Wawa goes deep, you know, and that is now they're up to 90% employee owned an employee-owned business. So they've really been over backwards for the employees. Or I think of Bucky's, if you're familiar with them in Texas area, they literally have billboards as you're driving down the highway saying, we know you got to go pee, but in 10 minutes, 15 minutes, there's a Bucky's because they pride themselves on having the cleanest restrooms anywhere in any restaurant environment. So, you know, there are some that do great job for, again, the guests, but I think the ones that are bending over backwards for the employees, they're the ones that you wind up creating brand ambassadors that will go out there kicking and screaming about how awesome they are. Man, when I was a kid and we had to go to the bathroom, we waited for the McDonald's and now no way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, there's no way. So now I know when I'm in Texas to go pee at the Bucky's. Yeah. All right. Bucky's, this is really helpful. Bucky's is the place to go. Yes. <laughs> well, I think about some of these industries, you know, food workers, right? Retail workers, the workers themselves are truly struggling and people have been trying to figure out how to help them. Do they donate to GoFundMe? Do they, I don't know, do they donate to World Kitchen, right? I mean, where where do we make the biggest impact for these workers? Do you have any advice on this? Like, how do we help? And, you know, I think the National Restaurant Association, again, I'm not a member anymore, but I know that they usually can identify there's a restaurant employee fund that is sort of a catch-all bucket that people can donate to. You know, when I go and speak and also my book sales, there's a percentage that always goes to No Kid Hungry. That's always been a big focus of mine because I grew up in this industry. So I really want to make sure that I was doing something that would be hunger-related. That's the cause of choice for me. And I do think about the fact that, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but when kids can't go to school and they're still, you know, we were doing really good. We had gotten all the way to one out of every six 
kids in the United States were going to bed hungry. One out of six, which is still sad. We're back now to before that. We're down to one in four. So 25% of all kids go to sleep hungry. And if you think about some of these kids that are food starved, really, they're getting their only meal when they go to school because schools now, for the most part in public education, they do a free breakfast or a free lunch. So they might not be getting a meal at night and they certainly aren't getting any food or a lot of great healthy food on the weekends. So if you think about it, their toughest time, which was awesome, Lori, for you and I when we were kids to have summer, summer is the worst time for them because there's no food. Their parents have to figure out a different way, whether it's through food banks or donations or whatever. So whether it's Feeding America, No Kid Hungry, these are the ones that I've really focused on. But in our specific industry, you know, I think the GoFundMe pages work if you know somebody specifically. That That's how those individual charities work, that you can donate, I think, for the most part, if you know of a person or an organization that might be local for you. And I can't stomp on any charity as long as it's an authentic, you know, 5013C. I just think there's so many causes. It depends on what's going on in your world. I will say this too. My co-host on our podcast, Brant Menzoir, who had one of his sons that went through cancer, we support some cancer charities. We have a local one called Cannibal Kids Cancer. So again, that has nothing to do with the industry, but that hasn't stopped me from you know writing checks. Anything that I wind up doing, I want to put it in the right place. So I help support some of the causes that he believes in. But for me, it's food-oriented, food-related. So No Kid Hungry is my cause of choice. Again, I think if anybody just has something going on in their life, all they got to do is just go online and they'll find something that's probably appropriate for them. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. I'm really struck by how you know this industry and how deep your expertise goes. And you've mentioned a couple of times that you've grown up in this industry, but we haven't really talked about that. So I want to make sure we cover that because you're right. A lot of people do start out in restaurants or gas stations or in some sort of service work, and then they go on to do different things. Like one of my very first jobs was being a busboy, even though I'm not a boy, that's what they called me. And I lasted one night because the owner of a restaurant told me to put a bunch of bottles of ketchup onto a tray and carry them into the back. And I was like, five feet tall, 89 pounds. And the tray, when I picked it up, just kind of fell over on me. And he said, kid, that was the dumbest thing I've ever seen anybody do. Get the hell out of here. And I'm like, oh my God. And then I had a server follow me out and said, kid, that was hilarious. Here's your share of the tips for the night. And it was 200 bucks. I'm like, oh my God, it's amazing. So the industry was a little hard on me, but I still made 200 bucks that night. So you're right that people start out in it. How did you start out? Hey, first off, I'll tell you, you lasted longer than I did in a job. My shortest was I worked three hours as a housekeeper at a Marriott Residence Inn and just walked off the job. I actually think I went to the office expecting to get paid for that. But man, that was some hard work. That's probably some of the hard, hardest work. Same with dishwasher, busboy, busser. Those are some hard gigs. You know, I started off actually working in a snack bar in a local theme park called Gatorland Zoo. It's actually one of the coolest unknown, you know, best kept secrets, I think, in Central Florida. Gatorland Zoo couldn't be more Florida though. It is, <laughs> it is perfect working at a, and it's a working gator farm. I mean, they, they do a lot of things with the alligators out there, but my first story was working in the snack bar and I worked in the retail store and I drove a little miniature train and worked on the alligator insemination program, which I don't actually like to talk about anymore, but it was a great opportunity to me. And I'm a 
really a long timer. I stayed there for three years and I went to school to be a musician. So I do have an associate of arts degree in music performance and education. I was a vocalist. And so a lot of the singing I did was very formal, a lot of church and choral and opera and and musical theater and all that stuff. And I found out while I was at, at college that to make a living doing that, you actually had to be good. So I changed careers. I became a middle school teacher. I did that for six years and absolutely loved it. And during that time, during the day, I was teaching school. And at night, I worked at Olive Garden, which is the American-based Italian restaurant. Not necessarily the mom and pop Italian restaurants that most people would know. But But dude, uh, Olive Garden's awesome. Those breadsticks, come on. I mean, you know. I know how to make some breadsticks. I know how to do that. Yeah. And uh, I did that for three years and became a trainer. And that's really what gave me the opportunity to go work at Hard Rock. When the new Hard Rock had opened up in Orlando, at that time, it became the busiest restaurant in the world. They were pumping about 7,000 people a day doing, I don't know, $35,000 hours, which is unheard of in the restaurant world. I mean, that thing will do 40, maybe $42 million on any given year. It's crazy, the volume that you pump through that. So, you know, you start doing that as an employee, and I just asked to be put up front as a host so I could touch all 7,000 people coming through and hand them off to the server, the bartender. But you know, I had a propensity to wanting to be around other people and just made that my career and became a trainer. And I opened up Hard Rocks around the world and worked a little bit in Paris and Barcelona and Madrid and and all over the place, became a manager for a year and ultimately moved over because of my education background and all the training stuff that I got to do with Hard Rock and ran training and development for them about 16 of my 21 years. So, you know, again, I fell madly in love with the culture and probably some of the most interesting humans I'd ever been around on the planet. And it changed me. I discovered who I was. You know, it reminds me of Michelangelo, who, you know, the 16th century sculptor who, in addition to painting, you know, he actually sculpted a lot of things. He said, I never really created anything out of the rock. All I did was remove all the excess rock to reveal what was truly inside. And I think a lot of these people like myself, you know, fairly middle of the road, I would think, coming into a brand and all of a sudden it's irreverence and unpredictability and passion and authenticity. And you really discover a lot about yourself. And so those ideals and the the philanthropic nature that I now have, I learned all that working for a restaurant company. So, you know, again, I still talk very highly about them and I haven't been there for eight years, but I'm still a brand ambassador for them. Well, time really flies. In those eight years, you've been speaking, you've written a book, you're working on new books. I have known you primarily as a keynote speaker and have been inspired by you and the way you talk about human potential. I mean, I just think it's really lovely because you value every worker and you value every contribution that they make. And I come from a very working class background. People in my family didn't go to college. I was the first person to do that. We worked in restaurants. We, you know, we were cops. We were firemen when we were successful, right? You know, and I just think that sometimes we don't value the essential workers in our society. So as we start to wrap up the conversation, I want to talk about these essential workers and what is the the future? What's the future for the industry? And what's the future for these workers themselves? Yeah. So broad macro scale, we're going to lose a ton of restaurants. They're not going to be able to make it out, unfortunately. And part of it is just because of the dynamics. You're going to have this massive wave of unemployment. 
you know, I don't know when this will air, but we're probably at 20, a little bit over 20% now. And I think what you're going to see is that some mom and pops, whether it was because of the payroll protection loan, whether it was unemployment, whatever it is, that wasn't doled out. And you might just have some essential workers that are just going to get fed up. And whether they had a job or not, they're going to go somewhere else, especially if they were a really good employee. Rock stars can always get another gig. It's not a problem for them. So I think there's just some businesses that physically aren't going to make it. If you do make it out, I think you're probably going to see a little bit more regulation. I mentioned some earlier. I think you're going to wind up seeing some P&Ls that will now have to start budgeting, whether it's more safety and sanitation courses. I think people are going to be way more educated, not because they're just serving food. I think if you're stepping foot in a restaurant business or even a hotel that has a food and beverage element to it at all, I think you're going to see a lot more training. I do think you're probably going to see for a while... A lot of people that are just a little bit skittish around food, they're going to be wearing masks. And I bet you back in food prep areas, you might see masks full time. I think employees are going to be absolutely temperature checked as they come in, perhaps for the next six to eight months. Who knows what happens in 2021? And by the way, everybody that thinks that this is over, who knows when it starts getting cold again and you know we might have a second wave and everybody becomes a little bit apathetic and lackadaisical and boom, the thing could take back over. So you know it's going to be tough on a lot of people that think they can ride out the storm if they haven't put any of these things into place. So I do think you're going to see a real focus on making sure that everybody internally and externally are safe. But I also think there's going to be some awesomeness that comes out of it. I think that there are organizations that now realize the difference between me and the guy or girl next door, if we've got a like business, is going to be service more than anything else. We might have similar products, but the ones that are going to absolutely bring the thunder, bring something spectacular, treat the guests or the customer like they, in fact, are the rock star, they're going to win. And that is all predicated on human behavior. So I think if you could get people, if they weren't already there, to just think a little bit more that, man, we could just ratchet it up. We could leapfrog all of our competitors. All we have to do is just focus on people a little bit more. And the ones that do that are absolutely going to win. So, you know, I think it's going to be really tough here in the short term. But in the long term, we're going to be a healthier industry. You said it best at the top of the show. I think there's going to be a bunch of resiliency that will come out of this. And I think we're going to be in a pretty good place. But unfortunately, I think you're going to see some that will fall by the wayside. You're already starting to see it in the retail world. I think it's a matter of time in restaurants and perhaps some hotel chains as well. Well, I love all the insights today. I always learn a lot listening to you and learning from you. And Jim, it's just always fun to reconnect and see you. So thanks for being a guest today on the podcast. Absolutely. And I can't wait to have you on our podcast. I know we're going to be doing that pretty soon, but I know it's been a couple of years, but we need to make sure this doesn't go this long again. Podcast swapsies are my favorite thing. I cannot wait to do it. My friend, you be safe. And again, thank you for being a guest today. You got it. Rock on. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jim Knight. If you want more information on his podcast, if you'd like to invite him to come speak at one of your company events, even if it's virtually, head on over to laurierudeman.com forward slash punkrockhr-113. Now that's all for today. And I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR.